Okay, today is April the 24th, 2012, and I already mentioned about George Mueller being here tomorrow and Thursday. So let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness that we can always count on you. We indeed are faithless, but we can rely upon your mighty power and your grace and your direction and your word in order to turn us losers into winners, even in the devil's world. We know that the Bible is going to come under attack as we use it, so we pray that you will help us to focus and concentrate on these issues with regards to the Bible so that we will be better prepared. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to start out by reading a very, just an excerpt, a short one. By the way, this was in your latest issue of the Brian Call under the power of God's design. And the reason I'm reading these few paragraphs is because I want you to know I am not the only one harping on people about asking questions. So when I saw this, I thought, I've got to read this one. I'm just going to break into the middle of it. It was written by uh, Abraham. No, no, that's not right. Well, that was just a quote. It said Abraham Lincoln. I know Lincoln didn't write this. (laughs) Mark Cahill was was the fellow that uh, wrote this. This is what he says, and I quote, I speak in many venues around the country, so I fly a lot. Once on the drive from the airport, I saw a beautiful sunset, one of the most amazing technicolor displays that keeps changing like a kaleidoscope. I began to pray that someone would see that beautiful sunset and wonder who painted it in the sky. The following night was Halloween. I was staying with some friends who had a very large house set back from the road quite a distance. So no one had come to the house for candy that night until there was a ring at the door around 9.30. As the lady of the house went to answer it, I stuck my head around the corner to take a peek. At the door were two young ladies, their faces painted like cats. They looked a little bit too old to be trick-or-treating, so I asked uh, what, what their ages were and They said we were 20 and 21. I asked them uh, what they were doing trick-or-treating, and, of course, they said they wanted some candy. (laughs) I thought you weren't supposed to ask ladies their ages, but anyway, that's a dangerous thing. Um, After chatting a few minutes, I brought up a question about eternity. One girl responded, you're wasting your time talking to us about God. We're atheists. By the way, that was the second question already he asked. Third question. So I asked them what evidence they had found to prove that there is no God. And they didn't have any evidence at all, which I found very interesting. Like many people, they were probably thinking that the reason, that reason was on their side. Without any evidence to support their belief, what they actually had was blind faith. And they were using that as the basis for their eternal destiny. Some people think it's blind faith to believe in God, but we use calculated faith for most decisions in life, and we should do the same for our decisions about eternity. I asked them, question number four, by the way, what would be enough evidence to prove to them that God exists? And they didn't have an answer for that either. So I told them I would give them something to think about, and I explained the concept that the universe displays creation, design, art, and order. And I asked him, question number five. It doesn't say that. I'm just bringing it out. Number five. I asked him if everything else has a, if everything else has a creator and a designer and uh, an order behind it, why would you think that there is no, uh, there's not a God, a, a creator, designer, artist, orderer behind the universe. See, he's, he's making them think. They, they can't argue with anything he says because all he's doing is asking them a question. 
Suddenly their eyes grew wide, and one, young, one of the young ladies said, Yesterday I walked outside at dusk and saw a gorgeous sunset. And I was wondering to myself, who painted that in the sky? Within 24 hours of my prayer, I got, I got to meet someone with whom God had answered that prayer. Both young ladies were students at a local art college. As artists, they knew that for every beautiful painting, there must be a painter who created that artwork. And logically, the same would have to hold true for all that is in this incredible universe. So, he asked one, two, three, four, five, six, seven questions in that thing, and he got them to think, <coughs> and through all that, the Lord answered his prayer. So, seven's a good number for questions to get started. Just remember, as long as you, you know, I hadn't thought of this till just this moment. As long as you're asking questions, you don't have to answer any questions. <laughs> you ever think of that? So you don't have to be nervous about answering questions if you're the one answering, uh, asking all the questions. Uh, however, what do you do when they ask you a question? Well, that's a trick question. No, it's not trick. It just means that you have to think about that. Remember I said there's a time to give them answers. There's a time to give them the information they need, but not if they're just wanting to argue. If you're giving them evidence that the Bible is the Word of God or that God is the creator of the universe, you're giving them evidence and they're not believing it. What did I say not to do? Right? Don't argue with them. Just give them, you say, this is why I believe it. See, that way it's not an argument. Well, if you, if you don't believe that, that's your choice. But this is why I believe it. I know a lot of people that to them this is enough evidence. So you don't argue it. But if you want to stay in control of the conversation, when someone asks you a question, just re return a question. In other words, whatever they ask you, you might say, well, why would you want to know that? See? then the ball is right back in their court. So, okay, uh, we're going to get on with our net, net this evening. With um, I don't know how this is going to show up. We'll see. <coughs> I think I have to scroll on this one. Remember, the this is a better look at the chart that I was showing you. Surviving manuscripts of the ancient authors. And you had the traditional books. We looked at Homer who uh, wrote the Iliad in 900 B.C., and the earliest copies and so forth. We went in detail over this last time, so I'm not going to go over detail on it tonight, except let me get over here to the end side. Over here, okay. <coughs> the Iliad who there was 500 years before the uh, earliest copies were made. And the copies that remain that they know of is 643, which is by far, that's three times more than the number two uh, as far as copies go, number of copies that exist, which is Sophocles. The book is a tragedy. And it has 193. After that, you have less than a dozen and all these on this list. Until you come down here to the Bible, and look at that. The manuscripts that are still extant that we have, that, that we have um, are at least 6,000. Ten times more than what the Iliad is. And all these, this, this column right here, are the number of years after the original before they started getting the copies made. Here you have the... 900, 300, 1600, you see how many, look at the Bible, 25 years afterwards, after the original manuscripts were made. 6,000 copies. Most people don't know that. And so when, someone's, you know, when someone starts attacking, well, the Bible is just, you can't go by the Bible, written so long ago, written by a bunch of men, it's, it's full of errors and everything, that's when you could start using this as a question, just ask them, well, you seem to know pretty much about the Bible. Do you know how many manuscripts are still existent from the uh, original 
from the original, the copies, how many copies of the manuscripts we have? Ask them. I, uh, the chances are about 99 out of 100 times they're not going to have a clue. And if you can get them to guess, they might guess, I don't know, 5, 100, 300. I can almost assure you it's not going to be 6,000. So if you tell them, well, no, there's 6,000 uh, manuscripts that we have from the Bible, and the closest, uh, the co closest ancient writings that we have as far as copies that are still extant is the Iliad, and there's just a little over 600. So it's 10 times more in the Bible. Most of them just have less than a dozen copies still extant. Now, and then you might, not just give them that, but you need to know why that is important. Why is it important that we have 6,000, more or less, probably more, manuscripts? Because a person might well say, so what? What are you going to say? See, if you have 6,000 manuscripts, they're not all complete books. Some of them are just uh, parts of books. But what you can do is you can check, check them against each other. I mean, if you have 6,000 of these, you're going to cover the whole New Testament. And if, if they, you can tell if, they're, if there's a lot of big errors in there, then it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to show. But there are, the, the textual criticism handles the, what they call variances in the Bible. And there are variances from the different manuscripts. I'm, we're going to go into this a little more in a few minutes, but the point is the variances are less than 1% of what is written, and they, they don't really uh, have anything to do with changing the interpretation of anything. Most of them are a, a letter misspelled in a word or things of this sort. And so it's minuscule. Okay, we're going to learn more about the Bible, how it's compiled and so forth. We start here. How to determine which books go into the Bible. Did you ever wonder that? And when someone tells you, oh, that was written by a bunch of men and so forth, instead of getting on your defensive, why not ask him, well, how was it compiled? How, how, do you, how, how did they choose the books that, that were going to be part of the canon of Scripture? What's the chance of them knowing that, by the way? Huh? They're standing there dogmatically saying, you, the Bible is not to be believed. It's, it's not credible. It's written by a bunch of men. It's old and all the rest of it. See, when you start asking them questions, you know what they're going about that? About that? You ask them, did you know there's six, do you know how many manuscripts are still extant with the Bible today? No, they don't know, so you tell them. Well, it's still just, oh, you can't, it's, it's not worth anything. Really? Well, do you know how many books are in the Bible? Do you know how many authors? By the way, y'all should know that. 66 books, about 40 authors, maybe 39 or 40. We don't know about Hebrews, who wrote that. And then you might say, well, do you know how they compiled the books? How did the books that wound up in the Bible get there? And if you're asking them these questions, I can guarantee you their dogmatism level, their, their, their assertivity is going to, it's going to plummet. You didn't, make, you didn't do anything. You didn't try to demean them. You just asked them some questions. If they're going to be so dogmatic about the Bible, then just ask them, okay. What you're really doing is saying, okay, if you're such a big expert, Enlighten me. Tell me how many manuscripts we have. Tell me how the books of the Bible were compiled. What were the criteria? Okay. Let me move this back over here a little bit. The canon is a list of books officially accepted as Scripture. When we talk about the canon, that's what we're referring to. The books of the Old Testament were written by accepted prophets did not contain doctrinal contradictions, were accepted by the Jews for centuries, and may have been formally recognized in the first century A.D. Esther, Ezekiel, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs were sometimes disputed. The book of Esther was likely doubted because it does not directly mention God. The books of the New Testament were accepted by Christian congregations if they met certain criteria. Here's the criteria here, three, three of them uh, essentially. First of all, they had to come from apostolic authority. Either the apostle had to be the author or an authority that was uh, very important or knew the author, close to the author, something of that sort. It had, in other words, they had to bear 
apostolic authority. Number two, tradition. If a book had been used for many years, it would be more likely to make it into the canon than a disputed book. If churches rarely or never used a book, it would not likely be considered canonical. And the third one is the doctrine. Books must have sound doctrine. The standard was the apostles' doctrine, by the way. The books of the New Testament were probably recognized as canonical or inspired right away. Manuscript P46 is a collection of Paul's epistles that was copied around A.D. 200. You know what he's talking about here. They know from whatever this uh, manuscript P46 is, is that already within A.D. 200, which was about 100 years by the time the canon was completed, they already had compiled a collection of Paul's, Paul's writings. Marcion's list, that's with regards to Mark, uh, dates to around 140 A.D. These show that they were early collection of books or Bibles. It's important to understand that the early Christians asked and relied on the Holy Spirit to guide them in these matters. You can't keep that out for sure. Because if God is omnipotent, omniscient, if He is who He says he is what the Bible says he is, then he certainly has the power to have the books, the information that he wants us to have to be compiled and be part of the Bible. That goes right along with him being able to have the Bible be preserved under the greatest of attacks. However, they only recognized the canon of inspired scriptures. They did not determine it. So if someone says, well, how did they determine so-and-so? Well, they really didn't determine anything. They recognized what God had already inspired, the, the inspired scriptures. Okay, now this, is, this isn't really a chart, but it gives you some information. I'll go through it kind of slowly so you can grasp what it's trying to say. Original manuscripts were from 45 to 95 A.D. In other words, that's when the New Testament canon was written by mostly apostles, but it was written from 45 to 95 around that. Some say 96 A.D. And, of course, they were written on vellum and they were written on uh, parchments and other things. So they didn't last a long time and they were circulated. But that was the original, the original uh, manuscript. Now, they, they call it, remember, they call it manuscript because it was written. After something has been printed, it's no longer considered a manuscript. Copies and mistakes from A.D. 50 to 200. Now, I already said something about the mistakes, so don't get alarmed at that. We're talking about less than 1%, and we're talking about mainly what we would call typos. Copies of both the originals and early manuscript multiplied. Most copying errors appeared by A.D. 200. So it was written from 45 to 95 A.D., from A.D. 50 to 200. They already had a lot of copies. And then you have textual families, A.D. 200 to 400. Now, textual families means that these manuscripts were compiled, they were collected and, uh, in different areas uh, around the Mediterranean. The Alexandrian one was uh, from Alexandria, which was the greatest library, ancient library. And so the, the, the manuscripts from that area were called the Alex Alexandrian manuscripts. And then you had some that were the Byzantine uh, manuscripts, the Caesarean manuscript, and Western. The, in other words, what it's saying is the, you, you compiled all, all these copies started uh, being made, and they had to organize them and classify them in some fashion. So these are the four classifications of the uh, groups of copies that were being compiled. And... They were mainly by where the location was is how they were named. Manuscript production and loss was from A.D. 200 to 1500. By the way, I'm not sure when the Dark Ages started. Does anybody know exactly the specific date when the Dark Ages started? I think it was maybe around 300, 400, something like that, A.D. And they lasted till the 15th century. And then 
there was the Renaissance, there was the, uh, the um, Reformation and so forth. Everything started changing. But one reason I think that it was the, the uh, called the Dark Ages is because the Catholic Church was in charge nearly of, the, of religion around the world. And they suppressed the Bible. And when the Bible was suppressed, people didn't have freedom. They were literally in the dark with regards to God, what, what this life is about and so forth. It was really a, 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 a bad time to live. And this is when these, uh, the production, there, there was a lot of copies made, but there were a lot of copies lost also. So before A.D. 1500, tens of thousands of New, New Testament manuscripts were made. Tens of thousands of manuscripts. These are all copies that were made. Several, several efforts were made to destroy them, though. Uh, you remember uh, Tyndale um, and uh, when they started, uh, uh, I can't think of the other guy's name. Y'all know who it is. Who is it? The, uh, translated in, into English. Um, Wycliffe. Yeah, Wycliffe. Uh, these, these guys that were translating it into English were the, the, the penalty for doing Even to be caught with an English translation was to be burned at the stake. And, of course, anyone who wrote it were in heap big trouble. And there were literally thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people. That, that's a huge number, but it lasted o over this 1,500 years of people who were caught with a Bible uh, were essentially executed. And, again, this was during the Dark Ages. So there was any time they found uh, uh, copies, they would try to destroy them. Now, who do you think was the moving force behind that? Of course, it was Satan. The last thing that he wants is for the Bible uh, to be all pervasive, and I'd say he's kind of losing that fight because I don't know how far above all other books the Bible is the biggest seller and has been, I don't know, ever since there was a printing press, I guess. And, so, and there's been probably more Bibles destroyed than every, any other book, and yet it's still... No one even comes close. No book even comes close to the production of the Bibles. Very many extant manuscripts ended up in monasteries where they awaited the Renaissance and the modern age. The Byzantine text was greatly dominated. In other words, there was more of those than the others. Uh, manuscripts rediscovery in from 1500 to 2008. Now, I don't know why he ended it in 2008, but that's a pretty big era, uh, a time frame there. In this era, some 6,000 manuscripts were discovered, studied, and cataloged. The Andra Alexandrian and Byzantine were prominent. Now, what translation philo uh, philosophies, methods do the Bible translators use? Now, that sounds very philosophical. All it means is there's really three types of Bibles. There are commonly methods and, and, and methods of uh, translating the Bible. First one is literal, also called formal equivalent or verbal equivalent or grammatical equivalent. That's the kind of Bible that I have. That's the kind that I recognize. That's the kind that we give to uh, graduating uh, kids from high school is New American Standard because it is on the far side, it's, it's about as literal and close to the, uh, not the originals, but the copies in the original language as you can get. The other one is called the dynamic, also called functional equivalent, meaning based on thought for thought. And then you have the paraphrased, or also called rephrasing. And I, he has a list of each of the Bibles that are in each one of these. Every translation involves interpretation, but literal method one tries to stay as close as possible to what the Hebrew and Greek texts read. Therefore, the little translation, uh, more than others, permits the reader to be the interpreter of what it means. Isn't that what you want? I don't want someone interpreting the original language for me. I, I can do it, but most people can't, and I don't want someone to interpret. I want the, what it, it, as close as possible to that Greek or Hebrew translated into English as it can be. And that's what the New American Standard does. They try to keep the same clauses, 
the same number of words, the same verbs, the, the uh, morphology of the verbs. It's always hard to translate. In fact, it's impossible to translate 100% from one language to another because you just lose some of the things in translation. But the literal translation, or also called the formal equivalent, takes great effort to, to sometimes even the number of words. They just try to get as close to that original language as they can. And that's what this is describing. And when, when it does that, then when you look at the Bible... When you're reading the Bible that says something, you don't have to worry about, oh, someone's already translated that. They interpret it for you, that meaning. No, they're going to go right to the Greek and say what it says. It'll say in a minute for, uh, uh, in a few moments, it was talking about the different kinds of Bibles. Now, in the Bible, sometimes it refers to the Jews as the, the, those of the circumcision. But some translators won't, say, won't translate that. They'll just say the Jews. Well, maybe that's okay and maybe it's not. But I want to know what it actually says. There might be some significance in translating it literally, but there's some people who would read the Bible and they don't even know enough about the Bible. If it says those of the circumcision, they wouldn't even know who it's talking about. These are things that people have to keep in mind when they choose the Bible. The source language is the focus of the attention, that is on the literal translation, the formal equivalent, and Packer, I assume that's J.I. Packer, says um, the translator make a word-for-word word and clause-for-clause clause correspondence with the original as far as possible. Good grammar and clear sentences are still required. So that's what we, I don't know, I hope you have that. I hope you have a translation that is a literal translation, dynamic. I mean, excuse me, uh, formal. <clears throat> now, in the functional or dynamic equivalent, here over here you have the most accurate as far as to the original languages. Over here, not all the way to the left, but pretty far to the left, you have the dynamic equivalent. And, it, and that's what this is going to describe. In the functional or dynamic equivalent uh, method, one tries to make the translation more accurate in contemporary meaning, trying to put it more in modern-day language. The translators interpret for the reader slightly more than they do in the literal, literal translation. Therefore, one's opinion can overshadow what the original text says. Translator may place too much emphasis on translating phrases or total syntax, which can be subjective rather than just words. Every translation has some dynamic equivalency. In other words, to get some things in English, you have to, sometimes they have to insert words. But we're going to find out if you have a good Bible and you come across a word in your, in your text that is in italics, a good Bible will, will have that because they're showing you that is not a literal translation. That word is not in that manuscript. But they had to add it for whatever reason. Sometimes you have to. I mean, for instance, in Greek, there's no such thing as an indefinite article. In other words, you don't say a store. I'm going to store in the Greek. Uh, well, it's even more mixed up than that. But, I mean, there's no a. So sometimes they will have to add an, the indefinite article for it to be smooth English. So there is some dynamic equivalent. In other words, you have to uh, add some things just for smooth reading. Okay, liberal dynamic equivalence. Now, we went from formal to dynamic. Now we're getting over here in close to what I would say gibberish. This is the liberal, oh, a literal dynamic equivalent and paraphrase. Oh, I'm sorry, we're not at the worst one yet. I forgot, there's still one, one set coming that's the worst. The chart arranges the translations from the literal to the full paraphrase. There are, of course, differences in it. So this is giving the Bible. These are the different Bibles as to the literal. These are the ones that I would say, uh, the ones I would go for first. The English Revised Version. I don't think I've ever seen one. It uh, was made in 1885. Then they came out with the, new, with the American Standard Version in 1901. In 1970, New American Standard Version. That's the one that I use. And then in 1982 came the New King James versions. 
I know some doctrinal pastors that use this. They like the New King James, and it's, it's pretty close to the New American. I mean, you, you see they're still in the literal here. Uh, then you have the King James, which is 400 years old. Actually, it's 401 years old now. And the, the language has changed a lot in the 400 years. Just think how much language has changed in your lifetime. So if you go back 400 years, it's really changed. And some people call this the authorized version, and any other uh, version is heretical. I've heard people say, I hadn't heard it, but I've heard that people say, if the King James Bible was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. <laughs> Uh, the Holy Scriptures, the Jewish, in 1917, and the Revised Standard Version in 1952. Those are the ones that are closest to the original. Then you have the uh, kind of literal and dynamic mix. You have the English Standard Version. That seems to be, I think I, that one's pretty good. I don't think it's probably as good as New American, but it's okay. The Holman Christian Bible, New, New International Version, there's a lot of people that don't like the New International Version. I mean, it uh, probably leans more towards the dynamic than it does the literal. New English Bible, New American Bible, you see all these going down here. Now, in 1996, they had a New International Version inclusive. Has anyone ever seen one of those? Ever had that? I don't know what it's including, but it includes, it's, it's includes something. Maybe there's a prize inside, you know, like it. What was it? The uh, Cracker Jacks here. Uh, today's New International Version, the Jew, uh, Jew, New Jerusalem Bible, and the New Revised Standard Version. All these are more or less in the dynamic phase, uh, a kind of a mix. Now, as we're going down, now we're into just the dynamic equivalent. In other words, we've gone from over here to the right with the New American Standard that keeps closest to the original. Now we're way over here to the left, and you have the Revised English Bible, New, new Living Translation, I don't know whether I would call that a translation, but uh, then you have the Tanakh. The Tanakh is the Old Testament, a new translation of the Jewish uh, Tanakh. New English Bible, today's English version, and contemporary English versions. I wouldn't recommend any of those. And then you have the, we're getting even worse here. Now we're getting the dynamic equivalent paraphrase. I've never heard of God's Word Bible, 1995, have y'all? hope you don't have it. New Century Version and Phillips Version. Now, these aren't even translations. I don't even think they claim to be. They're paraphrases. And then you get the paraphrases. These are absolutely nearly the worst. <laughs> They're just one tick up from the very worst. That's the Message Bible, <laughs> which is not a Bible, and the Living Bible, which isn't living. I would say it's probably dead. And these are... Here, are you ready for the very worst? Okay, here's the very worst. Bottom of the heap here. These are gender-inclusive Bible versions. Gender-inclusive versions include new translations, revisions of previous translations and lectionaries. Most were produced in the 1980s and 1990s. Some of these translations are more extreme than others. For example, the 1989 New Revised Standard Version, one of the first major gender-inclusive translations, has altered the text more than 4,000 times to make it gender neutral. In other words, they can't have God being male. And they can't have the Son of God. And so, I don't know, I, I, I wouldn't waste my time to read it, but I guess it would be the offspring of God or something like that. Something that is, uh, can be feminine as well. And here they are. There's three of them. <coughs> An inclusive language lectionary. Look where it came from. National Council of Churches, 1983. I, I would probably never burn a book, but I might be tempted on these. The inclusive New Testament came from Priests for Equality, 1994. And then you have the New Testament and Psalms, an inclusive version, Oxford University, 1995. And, of course, I would be surprised if any of you all had that. Yes. The Amplified Bible. I don't think I saw it. Did y'all see that anywhere here? Uh, 
No, I don't see amplified on here. Not to my knowledge. Here's the Phillips. Well, see, the Phillips is down here under dynamic equivalent paraphrase. I mean, it's just one tick up from the message and the living. Okay, so, yes. Yeah, that's what these are. These are uh, dynamically equipped. Let's see, paraphrases, uh, Phillips version. I don't know if that's just, I would assume it's talking about the whole Bible. They've got, now listen, this is just a very rudimentary list because there are all types of Bibles. What? Yeah, there's a lot on this paraphrase. When I went, to, I go to the Daystar bookstore here in Brenham. That's the bookstore, Bible bookstore. Go there and try to find a New American Standard Version. You know what you see? Eye level all the way across on these shelves. The first, the big one is the message. Under that, you have the Living Bible, and then you have all these things. You know where the, where I find the New American Standard? On the floor, over in the corner. And they had two. That's, I would say, shows you the sign of the times. Okay. What are the marks of a good English translation? So you can check your Bible against this and see how it comes out. First of all, the translation should be done by a team rather than an individual. This ensures checks and balances, although Tyndale did a remarkable job, even his work, would have been benefited by a team of individuals with his ability. Second thing, translators should all believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. Every translation involves interpretation and reflects some theological bias of its translators. There are no exceptions to this. And I listen, this, there's so many Greek scholars that are in on translating uh, the Bible. I don't know, only God knows how many of them aren't even saved, but it's, I would suggest it was a large number. They may have a, a great grasp of the Greek or Hebrew language, but if they don't even believe that the Bible is inspired by God, I don't think that they're going to have... Uh, let me put it this way. If I was getting a group together to translate, I wouldn't get anybody that didn't think that it was the Word of God. The translator should, of course, feel free to consult the opinions of other experts in the area. Three, the translator should be experts in the original languages and should be knowledgeable of textual criticism and translation theory. Now, do you all remember what trans, uh, textual criticism is? It's the, I don't know what you call it, science, art, or whatever, where guys go in and they know the original languages and they look at the manuscripts and they will, when they see variances in whether it's the Byzantine or the Alexandrian or the Western, whatever it may be, then they discuss and they debate and what, what, how should we, this word be translated and so forth and all that. That's textual criticism. But remember, we're talking about variances in less than 1% of Scripture, and there are very, very few places where it would make any difference anyway. In fact, uh, Robbie Dean at West Houston Bible Church for the last month or so has been going over textual criticism. And I've been trying to get interested in it. <laughs> but, I mean, really, I, I, to be honest, and I even told him, if it only affects less than 1% and it doesn't change anything, uh, to me it's a tempest in a teapot, but I guess it's important but that's what textual criticism is, and translation theory has to do with all those methods, whether it's formal or whether it's dynamic or whether it's just um, paraphrasing and so forth. By the way, you know, when they translate Bible, when they sell Bibles, Bibles are a commodity, and they're trying to reach different groups, and they will purposely translate some Bibles, in other words, I guess the way you could say is they will dumb it down so that people can even understand what is being said. And that's 
unfortunate because when you dumb it down, it's bound to lose some of its force and some of its vitality. And if you're trying to reach young people, they even have Bibles for young people, and they try to put it on their level to a degree. And I guess that's okay to an extent. But don't think that all Bibles are the same. All you have to do is a lot of you have Libronics. Some of you do anyway. And when you bring up Bibles and you go to the same verse on six different Bibles, and sometimes you, don't even, you can't even tell it's the same verse. And all that, God took care of that because he gave the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher who should be prepared where he can use the original languages so that there is any, anything that is, um, that is askew or it's hard to understand. Some verses are harder to understand than others, and it helps to go the, to the original languages. But I, I, I want you to also say this. That is not to say that you can't learn by reading your English Bible. The Word of God is still alive and powerful. And I hope that you read your Bible. I hope you read it every day. I hope that you are just, however you want to, if you're just looking for topics, if you're reading a book and you're going through it or whatever, this is God speaking to us and you're going to learn something every single time. Now, a person that is a new believer and he goes into Ephesians and he starts reading it from the first verse on, he's not going to get very far and he's going to get pretty well defeated. But that isn't to say that he can't go to the Psalms, he can't go to the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, go into the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 14 with the David series. I mean, there's a host of things in there that you can learn from. Don't get into the trap of thinking, well, I don't know the original languages, so the Bible isn't really worth my time to read because I need the pastor to explain it to you. Well, maybe that's true to a, a well, it is true to a degree, but that's not to say you can't learn by reading the Bible. Boy, every time I read it, I get things refreshed in my mind. And, and even if you just read a paragraph or two, you're going to see a phrase. You're going to see something that sticks with you. And probably you'll be able to use that very day if you're alert. So when I'm talking about these translations... Don't think that just because you don't know the original languages that you can't understand the Bible. The Bible was written in Koine Greek. That is the common language so people can understand it. And they've understood it for millenniums. Now, where was it? Four. The translation should be, oh, that's what I, I already went over that. Fairly literal, but good English paraphrases such as living Bibles frequently are not accurate translations of the Bible and should not be used as such. If a Bible is a paraphrase like the living Bible or the message, don't quote it in order to substantiate doctrine because all he's doing is paraphrasing anyway. He's just giving you an idea of what the Bible's covering. It's not a translation. And yet I've, I've gone to so many books that people like the purpose-driven church, the emerging church and books that are like that, do you know what they quote 90% of the time? These paraphrases like the Message Bible. And people see that, oh, well, they're quoting the Bible. Well, yeah, but what Bible? If it's a paraphrase, uh, you could go to uh, Dan the Shoeshine Man down here and get him to paraphrase just as well. I don't know if there is a Dan the Shoeshine Man, but if it was and he read his Bible, he could do the same. However, dynamic equivalent translations interpret more. For example, Greek New Testament may read, those who are the circumcision, I already gave you that example, we'll pass that. This is number five. The translation must be in good English and be easy to read and understand. And I think that just about eliminates the King James Version. Now, the King James Version, you've heard of the thundering diction of the King James Version. And there are certain verses that I learned in the King James, and I still will quote them in the King James, because there's no other translation that has the thunder that it has. But the King James Version is archaic. There's verses in there, for instance, if, if, cherish. The uh, faith, hope, and cherish. Well, what is cherish? Today it doesn't mean the same thing it meant then. Then it meant love, but today it means something else. 
Charity, excuse me, charity. Thank you. Faith, hope, and charity. Okay, number six. A good translation will use italics to indicate words not found in the Greek. We did that already. If italics are not used, the facts should be stated and explained. Okay, here is a good English translation will use a variety of synonyms but avoid local or regional expressions. Do you know what that's talking about? Each geographical area has its own colloquial uh, witticisms and expressions, and it says that's not a good deal. And then number eight, the last one, a good translation will have the same effect on it on its readers as the original had on the first readers. It will be acceptable in worship and will transform lives. That's how important it is. And I'm proud that this church is supporting the Wycliffe translators in Dafur. And uh, isn't that where they are, Dafur? Middle of, of uh, the Sudan. The Sudan. And I think is in Dafur part of Sudan or something? Anyhow, uh, they're, they're committing themselves to translating the Bible in the language of the people uh, that are hungry for God's Word. And just think if we, only way we could, uh, you couldn't sit down and read, it, read your Bible, you'd have to have somebody translate it. And their job is so hard, there's hundreds of people, of, of, of groups of people out there that don't even have their language reduced to an alphabet. They don't even have an alphabet. So they'll have to go into a village and make an alphabet to start with and then start teaching them how to, how to put the alphabet together, do words and everything. Listen, that gives me a headache thinking about it. Okay, that's the end of our textual criticism. This is just showing you how the Bible was compiled and the different kind of Bibles that you will be uh, more educated when it comes to uh, choosing a Bible and... They're, they're not all the same. They, they're trying to reach different audiences. And you, listen, if you go to this church and you've got a living Bible, something's wrong. Either I'm not really communicating or you're not listening something because uh, I go not only to the, the literal translation but into the original language as well. Okay. We don't have much time left. I probably should stop now, but we'll go just give an introduction here. This is the next phase of what we're looking at with regards to attacks on the Bible. All this that we've been going over the last three or, three or four times was to make you astute when it comes to someone questioning the Bible, whether it's God's Word or not. Evidence that the Bible is the infallible Word of God. Now, I think it's important. Remember, we, went, we spent some time on showing you, I did, showing you that it is good and it's right for you to have evidence. We're not like a Calvinist that says, well, what you really need to do is to be chosen. If you're chosen, you don't need all the evidence. God's going to give you the faith. And so what's all this fault are all about evidence? Well, it's important. The greatest evidence that the Bible in the Word of God is prophecy. Well, that's not where I want to go. That's not where I want to go. Let's see where I can go. You can put it in the right spot. Is that the end of it? That's the end of my notes. Well, I guess I'll have to go there. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. All I'm going to do is just introduce this because I had some other things that were put before this. But anyway, um, prophecy is the greatest uh, evidence that the Bible is the Word of God. And that's simply because no one other than God knows the future. And the Bible is the only book that has prophecy in it. I mean, the, do you ever hear... Quotes out of the Quran about prophecy? No. About the Hindu Vedas? Any, any prophecy there? No. Because only God can do it. So that makes the Bible the most unique book there ever has been because it was authored by God. And this is the greatest evidence. I'll read this one thing and then we'll shut down for tonight. This is a good quote here. Prophecy is the great proof that God exists, that the Bible is His Word, and that Christ is his son and man's only savior. Prophecies were given to indisputably identify the Messiah. Hundreds of particular, specific prophecies that we can point to, pointing to Jesus Christ, that he was the Messiah. However, these were pointed out to the Jews as well. And did it convince them? No. So here's the next point. Proof does not, however, guarantee faith. 
People always say, I want a proof that the Bible is God's Word. Well, you can give them evidence. And if they don't accept the evidence, what do you do? Y'all don't know what to do if you're talking to someone and you're giving them evidence and they don't know. They still say, no, I'm not going to do Y'all don't know what to do? <laughs> How about why? Huh? Well, that would work. Man, I should have I stopped a while ago. You just faded out. <laughs> I'm glad this is on the first floor. We just go through all this technical stuff about the Bible. Somebody went, right out on their head. Huh? Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, there must be a willing heart in spite of hundreds of prophecies proving that Jesus was the Messiah. The Jews rejected him and remain largely in unbelief today. And that is so sad. They had the most evidence the Messiah came to them, and yet they rejected him. They rejected the miracles, everything that he did. You'd have to be. Well, it, it's just, it's the same way today, though. Have you ever wondered... How can somebody be in a family where you have all Christians and they're Advent? Uh, uh, let's see. They are, um, they're, huh? No, that's not the word. I can't think of it. Adamant about God's Word. How about that one? And very hungry, great positive volition, go to class and everything. And then all the children, maybe except one, are, are, are hungry. They're get, and this person... It's just as negative as they can be. And you say, how could that happen? They're in the same environment. Well, they have volition. And there are some people that just don't get it. And it doesn't matter how much proof, how much evidence you give them, they'll never be, they'll never be convinced. And you have to realize that. And when you go into a, either a witnessing situation or you're just talking about doctrine, whatever it may be, you have to have a barrage of prayer because the Holy Spirit that's going to crack that person, not you. And even the Holy Spirit is not going to force anyone because God has given that volition and He will not violate it because it is what really is going to resolve the angelic conflict. So all these have to part to play in it. Okay, let's close. Father, thank You for this time that we have to study with regards to the Bible. We pray that You'll help us to remember about the overwhelming evidence with regards to the 6,000 manuscripts that are still extant and that we realize that the Bible it comes in different forms, different uh, uh, ways that it's presented. And we pray that you will help us stick with the literal translations so that we can ponder and analyze in our own souls to see what you would have us uh, understand with regards to your word. So we pray that you will help us to do that and that this will go into our long-term memory. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.